You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. KBOO's end of the year drive is happening right now. We invite you to become a member today by going to kboo.fm slash give or by texting KBOO to the number 44321. Contribute now and help us meet our $70,000 goal by the end of the year. Join the KBOO family today at kboo.fm slash give. This is KBO Portland, 90.7 on your FM dial. You are listening to Talking Earth. Welcome to the first edition of Bookstab, which is uh, my hope for a review of books we do not like on the show, as well as possible replacements for those uh, beloved authors who have failed in this particular novel or work or failed all the time as some may suggest for our inaugural, for inaugural uh, edition i've brought on a, a guest whose name i'm going to mispronounce because you just told me what what his name is even though i've known him for well over 10 years Ceylon anderson correct me if i'm wrong the pronunciation that is correct Ceylon anderson Ceylon anderson is a uh, well, he helped me help me make a film uh, that I won't mention either because I'm terrible in it. And he uh, is one of the few Portlanders who does not like Philip K. Dick. Uh, let's get let's get right into it right now. Um, All right. And uh, I have to say, I am one of the Portlanders that does love Philip K. Dick. Possibly too much. Prove, prove me wrong right now. Okay. Good evening, Portland. And uh, if you're looking for Elliot Smith, touch that dial. In fact, hammer that dial, because you're not going to be hearing any Elliot Smith on this channel. Oh, you, you uh, just put up a gauntlet. <laughs> <laughs> the heat miser is coming on at the end of this now. Oh, yeah. I mentioned Elliot Smith, because he's another one that everyone else in Portland loves, except for me. Yes. Well, let's not uh, argue about that right now. Philip, get okay. standpoint, please. So, uh, my issues with Philip K. Dick, and I have numbered them for your convenience. Number one, uh, he is not fun to read. Uh, Number two, he's not good at describing things. Number three, he never explains why his characters are doing the things that they're doing. Number four, and this is somewhat related to point number three, he does not create characters who are believable. Uh, his characters are basically cardboard cutouts that do what he wants them to do for the whatever point he's trying to make. Okay. Uh, number five, he is he makes really, really obvious points that people who use too many drugs think are somehow profound, such as writing a whole novel about uh, what it would have been like if uh, Nazi Germany had won World War II as if you know everyone it hadn't occurred to everyone else yeah that'd be a drag well 
Uh, I could keep going for the rest of the show, but let's uh, have some. Okay, back let's for here. brevity's sake. Let me respond to the last one first. Uh, you're referring to the Man in the High Castle, which is the novel where he imagines that the Axis won World War Two. Uh, it's kind of an early alternate history novel. Uh, there was a novel before that where the South won the Civil War called Bring the Jubilee, which is, I actually enjoyed that novel. I haven't read it in a while, but uh, it's one of the, the main progenitors of that genre where a, a, a science fiction writer usually. And uh, I, I, I know that I know that wasn't written by Philip K. Dick. Who wrote it? Ward Moore, I think. I can't remember. Okay. But it's very worth it's very worth reading. It's a little bit it's a little more character based actually, but I don't remember the characters being that great either, but there's a lot of irony in it and it's a little more gentle even though um you know, honestly, it's well, actually in the novel I think Robert E. Lee banned slavery a couple of years after the Civil War. So it's kind of a genteel version of what probably would have happened but that's not kind of the point that's happening it's like a it's a character study as well and a guy's predicament but it's a and it's probably one of that's probably one of the first alternate history or successful alternate history novels ever and it's very worth reading uh man and i castle i do like a lot i don't think it was that obvious i also have to say that he lets the japanese off a lot they are nowhere near as nasty in his novel than they were in real life it's uh, it's an also more genteel or a nicer version of what reality would have been like than even though it's because most of it happens in the part of the states that is run by the japanese um there's a lot of other weird stuff in it that's you know i enjoyed it a lot the first time i read it i read it like one in one night which and is that, that that just baffles me because I could barely my interest you know was I I could barely keep the pages turning I yeah. mean I I would yeah. read a page and I was like that was incredibly boring now yeah. I have to turn to the next page and but, you know a big a big part of the the man of the high castle was just him describing his incredibly boring job and I was like why is this in here and then of course I do a little reading up on Philip K Dick and sure enough it's autobiographical I which, mean his which character. Uh, which uh, one of the characters who worked in San Francisco and had some really boring factory job? Oh, oh uh, Frank Frank. Yeah. 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 And how how impoverished does your imagination have to be where you basically like I'm reading a, a novel about what, what would have happened if Nazi Germany had won World War Two. I think I'll include a bunch of scenes in some boring factory based on my real life. Let me just say this, though. You're not alone in criticizing his character development. Harold Bloom is on record disparaging uh, Philip K. Dick's char character development as well. That's it. I think he's really funny. I disagree with you about... Oh, that was my point number six. He doesn't have a sense of humor, yes. He has no sense of humor. I disagree with you. I'm going to read... Okay, so I'm reading something from another book. And this is uh, this is from the main character waking up after with a hangover. Oh, big and surprise. Um, okay, so he wakes up in, in his own room and he's like trying to figure out where he is. And there in the next room by the sofa, a familiar suitcase, that of his psychiatrist, Dr. Smile. 
Barefoot, he padded into the living room and seated himself by the suitcase. He opened it, clicked switches, and turned on Dr. Smile. Meters began to register, and the mechanism hummed. Where am I? Barney asked it. And how far am I from New York? That was the main point. He saw, saw now a clock on the wall of the apartment's kitchen. The time was 7.30 a.m., not late at all. Okay, and I was wrong. It's not his own apartment. Why does he want to know how far he is from New York? Stop, stop interrupting. The mechanism, which was the portable extension of Dr. Smile, connected by micro relay to the computer itself at the basement level, Barney's own Conap building in New York, the renowned 33, tinnily declared, ah, Mr. Bearson. Marison, Barney corrected, smoothing his hair with fingers that shook. What do you remember about last night? Now he saw with his intense physical aversion, half-empty bottles of bourbon and sparkling water, lemons, bitters, and ice cream trays on the sideboard in the kitchen. Who is this girl? Dr. Smile said, the gir- this girl in the bed is Miss Rondanella Fugate, Ronnie, as she asked you to call her. Okay, so I'm going to scroll down. Again, in the living room, he switched Dr. Smile back on. What what she got to do with PP layouts, he asked. Miss Fugate is your new assistant. She arrived yesterday from People's China, where she worked for PP Layouts as their pre-fash consultant for that region. However, yeah, I'm, I'm exaggerating. I'm not doing a good job here, am I? Basically, I uh, there's a joke because, coming, wait. folks. Get ready to to roll around on the floor. Yeah, if you're driving. Well, pull the over. The point is, the point is, and it's the next the next page. And it's been a while since I've read that novel, but the next page is basically there because they're precogs. They decided they eventually would get together. So why, why wait and do it right away when they first met each other? Now, I, I disagree with you. You, say do it, you mean when you say do it, what do you mean? Uh, they slept. They started sleeping with each other immediately. Nancy wakes up in her apartment in her bed with her. And he's like, okay. what, what happened? Because he got too drunk. They had to get drunk to do it too, but. Okay, that's the joke. Yeah, that, uh, okay, that's okay. one of the jokes. The other one is that it's a, it's a psychiatrist is a laptop computer, which is just amusing to me, but I don't know. But <laughs> I understand your, your viewpoint on the, on the sense of humor. Okay, so we covered the fifth point. Before yeah, I mean, uh, I know you're sick characters, of- right? And I'm going to have okay. to feed you the character parts. That That is a point. And that matters more in novels than it does in his uh, short stories. But you, you do have a point there. I think that's your biggest point is that he's not the best at character development. And too often they're just doing what is required of them for the novel. And uh, not doing the best defense of Philip K. Dick because I kind of knew I wasn't going to defend him that well. Sense of humor your uh character development um you have the, the characters doing stuff that they shouldn't they wouldn't do because and that happens to a, a bunch of novelists do that where they have characters do stuff they wouldn't do because they just need it to actually because they have this plot in mind whereas the characters were going to do something else yeah and that brings me to uh someone else a contemporary of philip k dicks robert sheckley who is a writer uh that i admire very much i own almost all of his books maybe all of them i don't know uh and uh he it is baffling to me that he is relatively obscure to philip k dick because uh he is good at describing things um to name just one of his books the game of x it's set partially in uh it's set in various cities throughout Europe, including uh, 
including Venice, and he's very good at describing things. He has a great sense of humor. I regularly laugh reading his books, and I never wonder why his characters are doing the, the things they're doing. They always have very clearly set out motivations. Please donate to Kibu right now during the end of year membership drive. Your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar up to $10,000 thanks to the generous support of a group of anonymous donors. You can support Kibu easily by going onto the website kboo.fm and click on the link at the top of the page. Um, so I've read a little bit of him. I read Immortality Incorporated a long time ago, and I've read some of the short stories, and I like his short stories, but I haven't read enough of them. What what novels would you suggest that or people start with or stories that people would should start with reading by him? Uh, Immortality Incorporated is a good one. Um, the Game of X... Uh, there's a number of short story collections. Um, I just grabbed a handful before starting the show. Uh, the one I grabbed is uh, um, The Robot Who Looked Like Me. Do you have, I mean, is there any short story in there that you would like particularly recommend? Uh, I should have uh, should have prepared for this well, interview in advance. There was one in particular. To get back to something. So you mentioned two novels. That's. I mean, Sheckley didn't write that many novels, did he? Oh, he wrote a lot of novels. He wrote a lot wrote of novels? A, yeah, he wrote a uh, whole series um, about a s international detective named uh, St Stephen Dane. Uh, he wrote five of them. Uh, they're all out of print. Um, here they are. Time they're, Limit? Yeah, Time Limit, uh, Live Gold, White Death, Dead Run, and Caliber 50. Huh. Um, they're just criminally obscure. I think they're equally as good as uh, the Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. I mean, Robert Sheckley was good at writing in different genres, not just science fiction, but he could write thrillers. He wrote another uh, criminally underrated thriller called uh, Man Out of the Water, I believe. Um, and I I have seen no evidence that that was in Philip K. Dick's wheelhouse. I mean, he wrote some other uh, stuff, but nobody cared. Of, I mean, it it did all right for a little bit then, but like it's that's not the stuff that people discover now. There are some like the, they all went out of print, and the other. I mean, he has some like regular novels that he was writing as well. But uh, the, the so I remember one of the first two points you made was that he doesn't describe things very well. Do you feel that like Robert Sheckley spends a lot of time describing things or is it just kind of uh, he's good at describing it and doesn't take that much time to do it? Uh, I'd have to um, I'll see if I can find an example while we're okay, talking while you're, while you're doing that I have a theory is that Jane Austen one of the things that's kind of weirded me out about Jane Austen's work is that you read it there is barely any description they walk into a room there's no description of the room whatsoever which is like kind of standard for our time and i, I mean it kind of back then they still did that they still described the room they described the she she everything was unfurnished there's like okay. uh yeah you're ready for okay. i found i found an example this is from uh robert sheckley's the game of x uh it's the opening paragraph of chapter 12 
I told myself that I was in a very serious situation, but I found it difficult to believe. There was a warm sunset glow on the old buildings. The canals sparkled a brilliant blue and brown. A thousand people pushed past along me the narrow street. Sorry, a thousand people pushed past me along the narrow streets. An unshaven man tried to sell me a toy gondola while real gondolas glided past. There was a smell of roasting coffee in the air. The sunlight, the crowds, the narrow protective streets, the gleaming water all conspired to lull me into a dangerous sense of security. So, and I'm not going to say that that's, you know, masterful prose. No, but that, that, but that, that it accomplishes paragraph. what it's trying to, what its objective is, which is to, you know, okay, we're in Venice. Uh, here's how you know we're in Venice. It, it, it you know, it creates a, a, yeah. a picture with words of the place. Yeah. Philip K. Dick never does that. He is terrible at describing things. In fact, most times he doesn't even try. Well, no, he's kind of doing a little bit of uh, what Jane Austen does, which she doesn't try. You know, and and that may be one of the reasons he's so popular compared to Philip K. Dick. You don't have to read the description. Philip K. Dick and Jane Austen, folks, two peas in a pod. You heard it here yeah. first. Yes. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm as. I mean, I I like Jane Austen's. Uh, what's the a uh, Pride Pride and Prejudice? I love, but I I don't know. <laughs> I it was a it's a very different writing for me than say I mean Shirley Jackson is a little bit like that but not even as much as that you know she still describes what she needs to describe and you get a sense of the room and J.D. Salinger does the same thing where he doesn't describe anything you're supposed to imagine the room based on a you know based on what's going on like the cat showing up like you know in the conversation you know yeah well i but but yeah like I, uh, uh, my recollection is jackson does a good job of describing things uh jd salinger i'm not a fan so i'm not yeah. a fan of jd salinger either i like shirley jackson a lot more than jd salinger in my own opinion and i've always been i've never i never read the i didn't read the catcher in the rye when i was supposed to read it which is when i'm a teenager I read it when I was in my 30s, so I'm like, what is this garbage? The John Fowles the Magus is way better at this for 25-year-olds. Okay. Uh, point number seven about Philip K. Dick is okay. that people who are fans of Philip K. Dick, you know, regularly tell me just how profound his writing is. As far as I can tell, he's just telling people things that they're predisposed to believe anyways. You know, basically, a lot of his novels and stories seem to have the premise, oh, your unsatisfactory life is actually just an illusion. No. Okay, the, the, the novel I was quoting from, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, uh, the point of the novel is that you can't actually figure out where reality is at all. And that is unsatisfactory to the point where I don't want to say I want to give anything away. That's another novel where I read it like in two days or something. And it's it's a dark comedy where things go south and they never get better. And that's also true of A Scanner Darkly. That is a really dark, grim book. He definitely isn't like, I think he's much more dystopian than you're giving him credit for. At the same time, Yes, there, there I, agree are people, I agree he's dystopian. I mean, there's no argument yeah, about that. I agree, though, that there are probably people who are Philip K. Dick fans who don't get it and think that it's like, 
what he means is that oh yeah it's, you, you just you're not going to understand anything anyway who cares it's not you know like it's an excuse to not live your life basically and maybe that maybe you have a point on that um i don't think that's a huge point i think the character development though that is that is an issue and it probably doesn't matter as much in the short stories like borges had some quotes about how novels are about character stories are about plot the problem is is you can make the argument that you know uh ambrose pierce would say could argue that philip k dick is a prime exemplar of the novel which is a short story padded he's writing short stories but he's making them long enough to be novels because he doesn't do enough character development. Um, have we have we destroyed poor Philip K. Dick enough? I feel like we haven't upraised uh, Sheckley enough. If you want to read something else of him, go for it. Uh, I'll go well, on to my next uh, book stabbing. Uh, I don't have anything at hand at the moment. So, what else can we talk about while we're waiting? All right, we're all right. This is the one that I wanted. This is the axe I wanted to grind. The novel that I think everyone thinks is amazing and is just, are you kidding me? Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. And I unfortunately could not find my copy because it disappeared, probably because I threw it out. But I have a cup that has first lines of novels and it has the first line from that. And it's a good first sentence. A screaming comes across the sky. Gets a lot of stuff in there. And that one sentence, the, the, the problem I have with Gravity's Rainbow is that if you tell someone the plot, it's hilarious. You hand it to them to read, they yawn. He like- Okay, what's the plot? long and convoluted but basically this character Tyrone Slothrop it doesn't start with him because it just goes all over the place it's supposedly anarchist Tyrone Slothrop he's marking places on this map where he goes and has trysts with women in Britain while the V2 rockets are coming down and where he has sex just happens to be where the V2 rocket lands for some reason and there's some weird company that had him when he was a child did weird experiments on him and they why, think why, they why did him. they do experiments on him i can't talk about it because it's pornographic why are they, are they perverts you can just summarize uh basically they had him uh, erections when he was a child for some reason but what why what was their objective i have no idea i've read the book i don't know it's okay. Problem, okay, but anyway, yeah. And there's like a triple. There's a triple Dutch agent, Cache. There's like um, uh, one of the people involved with the V two rockets is like reenacting Hansel and Gretel or something. You know, if we were doing this show live, there's right a now, Russian agent forward. called Tchichirin. So you can't even you, you can barely pronounce his name. You know, if we were doing this show live right now, your switchboard would just be full of calls just itching to come in and tell us, you're just too stupid to understand it. Yeah, well, no, they're probably right. But, like, uh, the thing is, is the real problem is that Pinchon, writing this, decided to throw, like, a gazillion adjectives in every sentence. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, his stuff was already ornate. His first two novels are kind of like not easy to read. And I'm going to read a sentence from the second one, the first sentence of the second one that I enjoy. I love this novel. It's only less than 200 pages. It's called The Crying a Lot 49, but it doesn't have a gazillion adjectives. It, you know, like they'll, the, you know, it'll be like the, the adjective, comma, adjective, comma, adjective, comma, a noun. Well, yeah, at one point there's like a nose, a giant nose walking around that's supposed to be Richard Nixon for some reason back in, back in during World War II. The whole thing's supposed to be said. That's, that's the sort of thing a really humorless people would think is funny. That's like, an, you know, someone um, who doesn't understand what humor is. It's like, oh, that's weird. That would be really funny. There's a rumor I heard that part of the reason that the book's like that is that when he was writing it, he was getting stoned out of his gourd. Oh, great. <laughs> so that's kind of what I, and the thing is- That's what I associate novels, good prose with, the, the, the author being a drug addict. I mean, it wasn't as a drug addict, it was pot. But like, you know, the thing is, is that his other novels are not really like that. They're a lot cleaner in terms of the way they're written. Most of the other ones, the ones afterward that have been actually brushed aside, like Vineland, People say it's slight, which it kind of is, but it's like a fun novel. It's not written as poorly as Gravity's Rainbow, where everyone thinks is amazing. So this is from Crying Law 49. One summer, summer afternoon, Mrs. Edipa Moss came home from a Tupperware party whose hostess had put perhaps too much Kirsch in the fondue to find that she, Edipa, had been named ex executor, or she supposed ex executrix, of the estate of one Pierce and Variety, a California real estate mogul who had once lost $2 million in his spare time, but still had assets numerous and tangled enough to make the job of sorting it all out more than honorary. Oedipa stood in the living room, stared out by the greenish dead eye of the TV tube, spoke the name of God, tried to feel as drunk as possible, but this did not work. And I'm gonna stop right there not many adjectives you know what's going on even though it's kind of a, a complex sentence structure you have a funny name funny names he does that a lot yeah but it, that's but it works for the I novel to, i was about to talk about that i mean i did read gravity's rainbow about 20 years ago and oh, i was yeah. like as soon as i read the name tyrone slothroth i was like elfine hell it's one of those um, well, he does that. I mean, and honestly, uh, Joseph Heller is probably the first one to do that with Catch-22. Yeah, I'm not a Heller fan either. I'm not the biggest fan of Catch-22, but I think what he was doing in Catch-22 is justified. My problem is with the ending. Which this is the he, thing about he, Gravity's Rainbow compared to Pinchon's other novels. Pinchon's other novels either have kind of endings that just go nowhere or they're kind of postmodern or you know they're they're not necessarily the most satisfying endings gravity's rainbow has like what i feel is a great ending the problem is the first 758 pages of the book i think i prefer the bad ending to the, to the reading a long entire book that i'm like not down with Yo, Joseph Heller ripped Joseph Heller ripped off the ending of Catch Twenty Two from R.C. Sheriff's Journey's End. You heard it here first, people of Portland. Okay, cool, cool. And I've not. I mean, honestly, that is like the, um, 
You should find it. Go find a, a joke from the Sheckley stuff if you can. Um, so yeah, now we've covered uh, Pinchon to a certain extent, and I, I, I love V too, um, which doesn't have its necessarily the most satisfying ending, but like it's, I think it's really hilarious. Oh, and uh, there's a character named Hilarious and crying it a lot. Forty nine. I think both of those are really fun. There was another one that got uh, made into a movie recently that's kind of paranoid, and that's one of the other things about uh, Pinchon. He's very his stuff is kind of paranoid comedy. Um, but yeah, like never been a fan of Gravity's Rainbow. It's like one of those overrated. Um, and while you're while you are while you're just finding uh, Robert Checkley. Have you found a Robert Checkley? So this this is not a joke as such, but it just kind of, you know, it shows he's, it's the opening paragraph of a short story called Voices. Like many of us, Mr. West sometimes found it difficult to make decisions, but unlike many of us, he refused to seek irrational forms of assistance. No matter how acute his problems, his problem, uh, Mr. West refused to let himself be guided by the I Ching or by spreading the tarot cards or by consulting a horoscope. He was a large, glum, secretive man who worked for the New York accounting firm of Adwell Gipper and Gascoigne and believed that everyone should make up his own mind in a rational manner. The way Mr. West did this was by referring his problems to a voice in his head. The voice always told him what to do, and the voice was always right. Now, that's not a joke as such, uh, but there's a, a bit of wry humor interweaved through the narrative. I mean, I, your, mileage, not, your mileage may vary, but I'm like interested. Okay. I'm not seeing the humor, but then again, I mean, the stuff I find funny is like Evil Dead 2. You okay. know, like, I, swallow yourself, swallow yourself, swallow this. You know, like kind of over the top stuff I tend to, but at the same time, that proves that Robert Checkley is the is the anti Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick's characters will consult the I Ching. They they definitely did it in the Man of the High Castle. They do stuff like that, you know, like they worry about the tarot. They worry about stuff like that all the time. Okay, well, they. I mean, at the risk of you know killing the joke by explaining it, the joke is is that he's a man who believes himself too rational to do things like consult the I Ching or read tarot cards. But the joke is, wait for it, he obeys a voice in his head, which, you know, would be associated with, you know, being a person being insane. So of, he thinks of himself as rational, but he's doing something that we would only think an insane person would do. I disagree. I think people generally follow the voice in their head. That's why I'm kind of like not thinking it's funny. But that's fine. I think we're overthinking it. I think we just, I think I just outed myself as an insane asylum uh, person. Now is the perfect time to contribute to KBOO's end of year membership drive because a generous group of donors will match your gift one to one up to $10,000. Thank you. And now we continue with Talking Earth. So I have a question for you. Okay. Who is Philip K. Dick's readership? How would you define the Philip, ideal Philip K. Dick re reader? A bunch of different people, which is why he has a wide readership. Um, it's 
people are interested in uh, drugs, thinking they're expanding their consciousness, which is un. Uh, I'm not going to say unfortunately a large part of the American populace, but it it is part a large part of the American populace. Uh, Philip K. Dick would say you got to be careful with that, which is kind of one of the points of his books. But he he puts it in there a ton of times, uh, and a lot of them don't get that. Um, Science fiction writers or science fiction uh, lovers, I mean that's a lot of the people. You know that's a lot of the genre that the, the people who love his that his audience. Um, I would say unhappy people. Well, that's there's a lot of people who are unhappy. I mean, to quote, happy families are all the like. Every unhappy family is un- unhappy in its own way. I think even Tolstoy would have to agree that most people are unhappy. Well, I've. Look, I've lived in Portland for... Uh, Do you feel happy? Do you feel satisfied? I think I'm, hap- I'm think I'm happier than people who enjoy Philip K. Dick's novels. I mean, that's... <laughs> I mean, I have spent some... I, I have spent some time puzzling over why Philip K. Dick appeals to so much, so so many other people, and why he does not appeal at all to me. And one thing that occurs to me is, you know, the... Uh, I forget the title of the short story it's based on, but the movie Total Recall, um, you know, it starts out with Arnold Schwarzenegger finding out that his entire life is a lie. Yeah. Uh, it's into his life. It's actually and, two weeks, but yeah. And that's a, that's a theme that's been repeated in other Dick short stories and novels that I've read. And that appears to be touching something very, very primal in the people who love Philip K. Dick is that uh reality they're not satisfied with the reality that they're living in and they dream of something better and yes. they find that very very appealing it's like the matrix as well and that that is um that is something i can comprehend um i thought i think it's also sad yeah there there's also the the other theme that's barely in that as one scene where the impossibility of discovering whether we're in a simulation or not. That that occurs, and that's actually in Total Recall too, because he has the scene with the guy telling him that he's you know still in the center, and he's gonna you know if he doesn't just leave, if he doesn't accept that it's not real, he's going to just die there. And the not the movie doesn't actually. If you watch it all the way through, it doesn't actually say one way or the other whether what we're watching is real or if he's just still having a delusion while strapped into his chair. I mean, and that's that's a that's the one of the big themes of Three Sigmata of Palmer Eldridge. I mean, the character, uh, the protagonist, either the short story or the movie, it doesn't matter. Uh, what would their ideal real life look like? Well, the it might be the uh, what he's living that he saves everyone on Mars and he's the big hero and he gets the woman at the end who isn't trying to kill him. Okay, so it wouldn't look like the life he had before all that, right? No, that, that in some ways that's the same. That is kind of the same thing, where it's like his life is a little more humdrum, but it's still like pleasant. Just not. I don't know. I mean, that, that's 
Why? What? What is? What do you think the answer is? I don't know. I mean, uh, Philip K. Dick. Uh, he doesn't really, in what I've read of his fiction, doesn't really posit an ideal life. I mean, honestly, the guy just seems like a depressed drug addict. I mean, yeah, I, I got That's that vibe really true. early on reading Dick. Yeah, this stuff, this looks, this reads like it was written by a drug addict. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely there's definitely truth to that. Um, I haven't read the short story that Total Recall is based on. So, um, do we want to move on to uh, something we both enjoyed that I didn't do enough research on? Uh, what would that be? Uh, we could talk about this novel that you suggested to me and everyone else in our little book club, uh, Martin Dressler, by Stephen Milhauser which is kind of a novel yes. that's all by the wayside that people have not noticed that won a Pulitzer back in the 90s, I believe. And yeah, but it's not as a, oh, wow, I've stained this book a little bit too. Um, I'm gonna open, oh, I got this, let's see what's going on here. Um, it's kind of like this weird Horatio Alger story, but it's like, it's kind of, it's grounded in reality but is written in a way where everything's kind of metaphorical as well and you have to wonder if this is entirely true you have to and you have to you have some questions at the end about what is the american dream and what is the meaning of it and what and, and it's actually a really good character study too of Martin Dressler and everything he keeps doing all these different things that keep succeeding on the outward but like interior in, the, in an interior way he's not I feel yeah uh, when I, I mean, first read uh, when I first read Martin Dressler um, the story of a dreamer about 20 odd years ago I was uh, shocked at what a masterpiece it is and I was angry, actually, that I had never heard of it before. I mean, I, I, it, I thought it was a cultural failure that the book, you know, despite having won a Pulitzer, so it did receive some acclaim, but it's, um, I doubt that it's being taught in schools. I graduated high school in 1990, so I, I wouldn't know, but I'm, I, I would be surprised if it showed up on a high school reading list. Uh, I've certainly it, Stephen Milhauser is not a household name. I've whenever I uh, I've never actually met in real life anyone who would uh, who knew his name. And mind you, it might just be the people I'm talking to. I mean, he does he he, he did have a reasonably successful career as a writer. I mean, uh, apart from uh, being in a Pulitzer, uh, winning a Pulitzer, he regularly would have short stories published in the New Yorker, so his stuff was getting out there. But even so, he is just not someone whose name you drop expecting anyone to recognize it. No, and I mean, there are other writers who have kind of fallen by the wayside. Like, I don't think many people know who Ann Beatty is anymore. Not that I'm saying she has ever written anything as good as Martin Dressler, because I feel she hasn't. Um, a much different writer as well, but she was getting published in New Yorker and big magazines as well. And I don't think anyone knows who she is anymore. Like things fall, like things fall off, but like sometimes it doesn't make sense why. Yeah, and uh, I and uh, to give uh, the, our audience some background, um, about a year or two ago, um, Patrick and 
uh, I and uh, another friend of ours and uh, Patrick and our other friends, they're both big fans of Philip K. Dick. So I was genuinely curious, how are they going to react to Stephen Milhauser? Is it, you know, is it just a, you know, is he capable of appealing to Philip K. Dick fans? And uh, as it happened, both Patrick and our other friend really enjoyed it. No, I think, uh, yeah, and I, Benjamin, uh, well, the, our other friend, who may come on the show at some point, um, he reread it, actually. I haven't reread it, but he finished it and then wanted to reread it again. Because there's stuff, there's, there's sections that are kind of like have two different levels to it, uh, multiple levels to it. Um, but uh, I don't know if I would compare him to Philip K. Dick, though. I think like the, I think the kind of, let me put it this way. Philip K. Dick is not the one, is not occupying the niche that uh, Milhauser would be at. It's people like Donna Tartt that are occupying this level that, you know, and for some reason, I'm not sure I'm not, I haven't read her, so I don't know. I can't gripe about her yet. Maybe I should, maybe that should be a future book stab and see if, uh, it's worthy of it or not but like yeah i think he's a he's more of a realist novel that he's a realistic novelist at least in martin dressler what is the other works are they realistic or not uh they're uh in the same vein um he mostly wrote short stories uh he he's written at least two other novels that i recall and uh i'm going to have to Make sure. uh, I'm gonna have to do some quick uh, research to. Okay, so it's Penny Arcade. Uh, uh, three other novels: Edwin Mulhouse, The Life and Death of an American Writer, uh, Portrait of a Romantic, and From the Realm of Morpheus. Okay. Uh, I've read them all, and it's been some time. Obviously, uh, they're very good. I will say that I thought Martin Dressler was his masterpiece. So. Uh, at least in my opinion, if you read Martin Dressler, you've read his best novel. Well, I think his other one, it sounds like his other ones are worth reading. I just wanted yeah. to talk about that. I and mean, that's not a book stabbing so much as like a book promotion kind of thing. And that that's, I wished, you know, there's there's a bunch of people who have fallen yeah. by the way. And, and he's, uh, he's written eight collections of short stories. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, move, if we can move on. This is a novelist that I've read before, Bernard Wolf, who I know mainly through uh, a science fiction novel he wrote in the 50s that has become obscure called Limbo. And I'm holding up the the photo of the book, the to, so he, or Ceylon, excuse me, uh, so that he can see what it is. It's a science fiction novel. It's kind of like, uh, I guess it's dystopian. <clears throat> it's, it's a weird it's like from the 50s when they were you know around the time of earth abides and a, around the time when uh the first like great uh dystopian novels like american dystopian science fiction novels were happening and there was a lot of room in the genre and what happens in this novel is that someone world war three happens but it doesn't wipe out the planet um everything kind of slowly gets rebuilt the main character decided to go into the wilderness and he's like help he's having uh, he's a surgeon for a uh a kind of violent tribe in the uh 
he's doing brain surgery for like a, a, a nation, like an indigenous tribe in uh, Asia. And he comes back and he discovers that um, his no- notebook full of jokes has influenced what the world has done. And they decided that the world decided that the way to end wars was to replace your arms with machines. And that, and hence limbo, they've, they cut their arms off and they put like, you know, metal hands on, or they have like, you know, they, they put like all these different tools on their arms and that's going to stop war. And uh, yeah, that's a, it's basically that reality is a sick joke. And I found it funny. I, it's dark and it's, no one reads it. And he did other works. This year, I read another novel called the that I bought because I saw his name on the novel. I'm like, I bought it a while ago from the bookstore. No longer exists. Called the and the novel's called the Magic of Their Singing. And I was thinking, oh, this is a novel about you know the Jazz Age. You know, this is probably. And I started reading it, and it's just weird. And I'm not sure if it's good or not. But it's it's like a parody of a beat novel. It's like a beatnik novel but it's ragging hard on him, sort of. So I want to read this little part. This is from the main character. It's kind of a jerk, I feel, but like he, um, when I'm drunk and then, oh, and he, there's this other character that's like him that he absolutely detests, who stole his, stole his date from him in the beginning of the book is this guy that the main character hates this guy Worthington Rivers so this is from the point of this is like him rambling to himself about, uh, stream of consciousness wise about stuff when I'm drunk I'm not myself but Worthington Rivers I have to watch and ward it ward it off watchfully when Worthington drinks he gets more snotty prank- prankish he snoots the lower classes he digs at those without his polish he stands on his pedestal of 20 million or whatever dollars and stares the world down. In short, he becomes more of the same. Drunkenness is simply a chorus call to all of his possibilities, which are replicas of each other. I, on the other hand, loathe and abominate my possibilities because half of them are so much like his and the other half are against the law. Any rallying cry to my innermost cisterns makes me panicky. When my skin cracks enough to let my less admirable syrups leak out, I immediately slip on another restraining skin, usually Worthington's, which is unconsciously thick and in abundant supply. Worthington Rivers is not a palatable thing to be, but at least it's handleable. It dictates set gestures and calls out set responses so that nobody, neither audience nor actor, has to improvise. And he just keeps going off on him. But like, uh, the thing is, it's like, so, what, uh, what was he saying in that paragraph? Basically, he's saying that he has all these possibilities, but he has so much self-hatred and he sees it all in Worthington, which he he's like chasing him the entire book long across like from like uh, Connecticut to New York in the middle of the 50s through jazz, through a riot, through jazz, like uh, jazz concerts. Um, Why is he chasing like, him? It, the, the whole thing is just utterly sarcastic about the the beats, and at why the end, ch- why is he chasing this guy? Uh, basically, because he's he stole this woman he was dating, 
He was dating this woman and she went off with him. So he's jealous. Yes, he's jealous and he's a jerk. You don't like him from the beginning, but then at the end- Okay, why didn't he say that? How am I supposed to know that he's jealous? I, because that's, that's about 40 pages in. You know from the first scene. The first scene is Worthington Rivers uh, punching the guy in the back or getting him knocked out and stealing the car and and the woman in it. So you know why he's chasing him the whole time. But like you also realize this guy's a jerk. Sort of. But like it's weird. It's it's like they just went on. Like he just goes off in the beats. It's like going through looking like it's a beat novel. And then at the end, really nasty stuff happens. I'm not going to talk about. And I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I understand where Wolf was coming from because he was like a. What you know, this reminds me guy. of. Wait, wait, let me finish. He was a way left wing um, Trotskyite dude. And he just did not like the beats at all because they were apolitical in his this is, you sound like people trying to convince me to listen to Frank Zappa because actually <laughs> Frank Zappa actually Frank Zappa hated hippies okay well I still find his music totally unlistenable you ever listen to we're only in it for the money yeah okay well then if you don't like that one don't bother yeah I won't <laughs> yeah I'm not saying I mean that wasn't necessarily reading that was not necessarily for you I was actually hoping for a bad reaction um I was just to tell people about there's this book that you know you might be worth reading magic that they're singing and limbo by bernard wolf and that they're kind of you know, like not not quite like stephen mulhauser because he's a better writer but like they're stuff that's like not you know they're obscure and honestly he's probably bernard wolf's probably a better writer than philip k dick so, I haven't read him, so I, I can't comment on that. No, no. Um, all right. So, except to say that I think being a better writer than Philip K. Dick is setting the bar pretty damn well. Oh yeah, you you almost did a cuss word there. <laughs> have you read Ann Carson? I have not. Okay, so this is the beauty. This is from the beauty of the husband. You're going to be griping about the context. That's fine. The, the, the main thing is that the husband is left her. So yeah, it's uh, 24. And kneeling at the edge of the transparent sea, I shall shape for myself a new heart from salt and mud. A wife is in the grip of being. Easy to say, why not give up on this? But let's suppose your husband and a certain dark woman like to meet at a bar in early afternoon. Love is not conditional. Living is very conditional. The wife positions herself in an enclosed veranda across the street, watches the dark woman reach out to touch his temple as if filtering something onto it, watches him bend slightly toward the women, then back. They are both serious. Their seriousness racks her. People who can be serious together, it goes deep. They have a bottle of mineral water on the table between them and two glasses. No inebriance necessary. When did, he, when did he develop this Puritan new taste? A cold ship moves out of the harbor somewhere inside the wife and slides off toward the flat gray horizon. Not a bird, not a breath in sight. It's been forever since I've read that book. 
I was very impressed with it when I read it. I read it from the front to the back, like quickly. And I might add the my version I have is not the version I read, I think, because the version I had had a thing at the end. Are you too are you too, are you too generous to writers in general? I mean, do you Probably. hate anyone as a writer? Oh yeah, I do. But uh, okay. oh yeah, no. Name, th- let me think about some writers you dislike. Let's get a baseline. Wait a second. Wait a second. Rob McEwen. Um, that's easy. Uh, the biographical note about the author: Anne Carson lives in Canada. Not talking about the husband <laughs> or the cats or anything else. Just live in Canada, go away. Um, not a fan of that, that either, are you? Living in Canada? I wouldn't recommend it. Oh, no, I meant Ann Carson. What I read. I, I have not read Ann, I have not read Ann Carson. Okay. Um, okay, so I'm going to read uh, uh, something by uh, Lord Dunsany. Yug the Prophet. When the years had carried away Yonath, and Yonath was dead, there was no longer a prophet among men. Who's Yonath? Carry on. (laughs) And still men sought to know. Therefore they said unto Yug, Be thou our prophet, and know all things, and tell us concerning the wherefore of it all. And Yug said, I know all things, and men were pleased. And Yug said of the beginning that it was in Yug's own garden, and of the end that it was in the sight of Yug, and men forgot Yonath. One day Yug saw Mung behind the hills making the sign of Mung, and Yug was Yug no more. Yonath was just another uh, prophet in uh, Lord Dunsany's Gods of Bagana, and uh, had the same thing happen to him because he, Yonath claimed that he... Uh, well, no, Yonath just died peacefully, I guess. But uh, the thing is, is that uh, you don't want to insult Mung because Mung, Mung is the god of death. And if you claim you know all things, Mung is going to show up and then all of a sudden you will be no more. Then the gods of Bagana, which was the first thing that Lord Dunsany wrote, happened because Lord Dunsany didn't know Greek or Latin well enough and he wanted to make his own pantheon of gods and he made this pantheon of gods that are really capricious and mad and uh, not mad they just you know treat human beings in the world as playthings and that's the point of it so you haven't read you haven't read Lord Dunsity very much at all so why did you read that passage out loud? Oh, because I just like him. Okay. What do you like about him? Uh, he's to the point. He's amusing. It's witty. Okay. And what was the point of that passage you just read? Um, the point is that, you know, don't speak of ill of Mung or you're going to die. And who's Mung? Mung is the god of death. Okay. I, I guess that's something you you would need to read it from the beginning. I suggest you, it's worth reading. Let me just put it that way. He influenced Lovecraft. I'm surprised okay. you haven't read Lord Dunsany. I'm just kind of. I, I've read a little bit, uh, but yeah, 
What have you read? As much as you have, obviously. No, I haven't read enough. I've read the early stuff more than... But often to understand things, you know, I have to shine the cold light of stupidity upon them. (laughs) Oh, that... That might be worthy of the end of the book stabbing one. Book stab one. Shine the cold light of stupidity upon them. So uh, let's see. We have uh, Philip K. Dick. That is a thumbs down from you. Uh, my thumb might have been up at the beginning, but it's kind of going a little closer to being down. But it's still probably up. But I would be a little like, be warned, dear reader. See who else do we uh, discuss? Ann Carson and Lord Dunstany were not giving. There's no real comments on Stephen Martin Dressler by Stephen Milhauser. Big two thumbs up. Yeah, I would ask anyone who actually managed to listen to this entire show. Uh, I the, the big takeaway that I hope you come away with it is to please seek out and find a copy of. Uh, Martin Dressler, The Story of a Dreamer by Stephen Milhauser, because uh, it is a good novel, and I have confirmed I'm not the only one who thinks so. Everyone I have everyone I have given a copy to or recommended it to who has actually read it has told me they, they love it. And then uh, the other one, both of us, Gravity's Rainbow, big thumbs down. I give a thumbs up to Pinchon's other works. I haven't heard anything from you about that which is fine. You don't have to chime in on everything. And I gave a big, I gave a thumbs up, uh, a much bigger thumbs up to Limbo, but Bernard Wolf, but also a thumbs up the magic of their singing, but I'm still not sure it's a good novel. Um, and there are some, you know, that's one of those works you haven't been able to show, shine the cold light of stupidity upon. But, uh, Hell, maybe next time I'll uh, try to read some of my own work and you can shine the cold light of stupidity on and destroy it. Well, thank you, you, Elon, for being here on uh, Talking Earth on this edition of this first edition of Bookstab. Um, And uh, yeah, have a great rest of your day. Stay well, Portland. Please donate to KBU right now during the end of year membership drive. Your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar up to $10,000 thanks to the generous support of a group of anonymous donors. You can support KBU easily by going onto the website kboo.fm and click on the link at the top of the page.
listening to KBOO Community Radio, and we're in the middle of our end-of-year drive. Help us meet our $70,000 fundraising goal by going to kboo.fm slash give to make a contribution today. KBOO's independent programming is only possible with your support. Give now at kboo.fm slash give. You can also text KBOO by entering 44321 and text the word KBOO. That's K-B-O-O. Our members continue to support community radio every time they give. You are listening to KBOO Portland Community Radio for the Northwest, 103.7 